Heavenly Father, we come in the, in the name of the one who brings joy, the Lord Jesus. The one who allows us to stand in your presence with joy and exceeding gladness. This morning as we look at Israel's cause to lament, at Judah's cause to lament, Lord, may we recognize how we, as sinners who have been saved by grace, might come to you, a holy God. In times of prosperity and in times of pain. Lord, we pray that your spirit would work within us, strengthening what is there and drawing us to you day by day. Amen. On May 6, 1937, Herbert Morrison was stationed at Manchester Township in New Jersey. He was conducting an experiment. He was there on behalf of WLS radio station, which is out of Chicago. And here's the experiment part. He is a radio station, and he was a, a radio news broadcaster. The experiment was that he was going to record a news story and play it the next day. Little did he, or the radio, or indeed the public, which was to hear the story the next day, know what was about to happen. This, this coverage was of the first transatlantic flight of the season, the first commercial transatlantic flight of the season. But it wasn't of a plane. Rather, it was the lighter-than-air Zeppelin named Hindenburg. And even as I say that, you likely know that this is not going to have a good outcome. On that night, as, as the, the, the aircraft came into the tower to, to land, it burst into flames. It's actually, it's a wonder that the majority of the people survived. Um, I don't know how, but, but it burst into flames. And there, Herbert Morrison's voice in the radio recording captured those famous words, Oh, the humanity, as he watched this aircraft burn before his eyes. Just a few years later, on December 8th, 1941, President Roosevelt uh, addressed Congress, and, he, and, and there was a live radio broadcast as well, and he described the events of the attack on Pearl Harbor. And there, famously, he describes the day as that date which shall live in infamy, right? These are, these are two uh, particularly horrendous events. You know, if we were to, to look at more recent memory, uh, maybe it's 9-11, maybe it's uh, the Oklahoma City bombing, um, maybe it's JFK's assassination. Likely, depending on your age, there are those times and events in life where you can remember devastating news coming to you and you can remember exactly what was going on. The smell in the room, the sights, the sounds. Maybe you're too young, and so you don't have such a memory, but you remember people talking about, well, I remember exactly where I was when this or that event happened. Well, in Judah, the southern kingdom, one of those major days of infamy took place. It actually took place over a number of years. It was one bad news bit after another, but it took place just before 600 BC. 
And that's when Nebuchadnezzar came and took control of Jerusalem. By 586 BC, the temple, that center of worship, that center of life in Israel, was leveled. And for God's people, it was and should remain a day which lives in infamy. In the midst of this time, nearly every aspect of the life of of the people of God were changed. Many, like Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, were taken into captivity to serve the king of Babylon. Others, they attempted to flee Jerusalem and were slaughtered. Still others remained in the land, mostly because they were so unimportant that nobody cared, and, and they lived out their days under difficult overlords and taskmasters. It's into these events that the Holy Spirit prompts the writing of the book of Lamentations. And over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking through the book of Lamentations and understanding some of the sorrow and pain that God's people experienced at this loss. Here in 2 Kings 24, we kind of see the beginning of this, where where Nebuchadnezzar comes in and takes over. And it's, it's the start of the calamity of God's people. We also understand where we are situated after Christ has come, that even this judgment, as horrendous as it is, looks forward to the return of Christ when all nations will be judged, where we will all be judged, where we'll either be judged and bring glory to God because we are united to the Lord Jesus and our sins are forgiven, or we will be judged bringing glory to God because His righteousness is on display because our sins are dealt with apart from Christ. As we look at this occupation of Israel, this occupation of Judah, as we wrestle with with the sufferings of God's people, as we begin to think about the book of Lamentations, what we're going to see is that we do not worship a God who does not care. Rather, we worship a God who enters into suffering with his people so that they might never suffer forever, so that they might never suffer again at his return. And that is our hope. That's our hope this morning, and it's our hope for eternity. Now, as we put the pieces of this world back together, kind of as we try to understand what's going on in, uh, in the, the land of Judah during this time, we have to understand that Israel then, as well as now, was in an opportune place to trust in the Lord. What I mean by that is to say that they were surrounded by people on all sides that wanted to possess the land. That just means they were surrounded by enemies, right? That that, that every which way they went, there were people that wanted to kill them and take the land. It It was a nation that was ripe for trusting in the Lord. And as we think about this, they usually had two types of enemies. The first were relatively small nations like Moab and 
um, Edom and Ammon. Uh, even the Philistines would kind of fit into this category. And these were nations that Israel could never really get rid of, but at the same time, they couldn't really overcome Israel. Uh, basically, what would happen is that Israel or Judah would get in a fight over here, and you know, another nation would kind of sneak in behind and bite at their heels a little bit. And, and it worked for a while, but you know, there was jockeying back and forth, and, and, and Judah usually came out on top. The second kind of enemy that Israel had, that Judah had, um, was far more problematic. And these are the historically great empires, right? You know their names, you know, whether it's Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. These are, these are kind of world-dominating empires. And the problem for Israel is that where it sits in the Mediterranean, as all of these nations want to fight with one another, they have to go through Israel. Now, just make no mistake here. When Assyria or Babylon wanted to, to take over Egypt, they would march along. They wouldn't just say, excuse me, sir, can I pass through your land unhindered? They would take over everything. They would forage. They would, they would take from the crops of the, of the land, and they would, would overcome anyone who stood in their way. And that was often... Israel. And into this, as we think about it from a, from a human point of view, we might think, well, you know, if I were the king of Israel, if I were the king of Judah, I might want some help. I might, you know, if, if Babylon's coming this way, I might say, well, let me go ask Egypt if they're going to help protect me from that big, strong enemy. That was precisely what the Lord said don't do. We see that, that God has placed his people in the land of Israel to to, to encourage them to trust in him. And I can give an example from, uh, of that. Isaiah 37 uh, talks about how uh, Jerusalem is surrounded by the Assyrians. And Hezekiah the king doesn't trust in, in other nations or in horses to deliver him. He, he trusts in the Lord. And, and as a result, the Lord sends an angel into the camp of the Assyrians and they all end up killing themselves. And so, so there's a massive victory and, and Jerusalem is spared. And we see that the trust they put in the Lord saves them. It, it, it brings about their salvation. Now, as we think about that, as we try to, to, to cast our minds into what it would have looked like to be a, a, a citizen of Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar comes rolling in, we have to say we look at them with a certain geopolitical pity. I mean, we are the, depending on how you count the islands, we're the, the, the second or third largest nation by land mass. We're one of the largest by people group, or, or by, by population number. To our east, we have this really safe ocean, that well, it's safe most of the time, unless there's a hurricane. To, to our west, we have another pretty safe ocean. And to our north and to our south, we have allies. We, we look at this, and, and it's easy for us to say, wow, thank goodness I'm not an Israelite. Thank goodness I don't live in Judah. As we think about the way in which uh, the Lord has placed his people in a particular land where they're, they're, they're called upon to trust in him for their, their salvation, we see that difficulty, and we say, 
thank you that I'm, I'm not there. At least temporarily we say that. And then as we, we think about, well, well how, do they, how do they live and trust in the Lord? How do they, they, they have the Lord's favor? And sometimes it's easy for us to look at the scriptures and say, oh, well, they had the law. So, you know, they kept the law, they followed the Lord, and the Lord protected them in this place. And we'll come back to this idea a little later this morning, Lord willing. But as we think about that, we also do recognize that God's people abandoned the law of God. And the, law, and the Lord did send other nations to bring about their destruction. We see that the Lord sends the Assyrians to, to destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. And in time sends Babylon to, to destroy the southern kingdom of Judah. But we notice here, as we think about the law of God and how Israel is to keep the law of God, if that is our understanding that they must keep the law and then they're protected in the land, the law becomes a monkey on the back. Right? It becomes something you you can't get out from underneath. It becomes crippling and crushing. And again, we, we look at at the people in Judah and we say, thank you, Lord, that I'm not there. We also then see uh, in 2 Kings the way in which the Lord brings this about. Look with me at the text again. Um, It says that three years after Nebuchadnezzar starts his rule, the people rebel. The king rebels and the people rebel. And as a result, the Lord sends bands of Chaldeans, Syrians, Moabites, and Ammonites. Syrians or Arameans. Um, uh, And the Lord sends them to destroy not Babylon, but Jerusalem. And just to be clear, make no mistake that that this is coming from the Lord. If we we pick it up in verse 2, we we see that it says here, So he, that is the Lord, sent against uh, Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through his servants and prophets. Surely at the command of the Lord, it came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done and also for the innocent blood which he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood and the Lord would not forgive. As we think about this, we recognize there's no conceivable way in which if you're in Jerusalem, that as, as Nebuchadnezzar is coming, you would say, Lord, didn't you see this coming? There's no way in which we can look at this and, and think that the Lord is looking down from heaven saying, I wonder what that pesky Nebuchadnezzar is up to. What we see here is that the Lord is sending these nations to come and to destroy his people. And if, our, and if our, our understanding is that you know, they've got the law on their back and they're just not keeping the law, we, we look at that and we say, how can anyone survive? But it goes further than that. As we think about Manasseh, and we, we might wonder who he is, if we actually flip a couple chapters earlier, we see that Manasseh is the king's great-grandfather. And so then... 
you know, I think, how is this equitable? There's this guy, Manasseh, he might have been bad and he might have led the people to be bad, but really you're going to take it out on his grandkids and his great-grandkids? How's this fair? And it leads to a question. The elephant in the room sort of question. Does God enjoy punishing his people? Like, is he, is he, is he saying, ah, watch this? Is he gaining satisfaction by wiping away the temple? Well, I think simply put, we would say that the answer to that is no. And, and in order to substantiate that, we need to look at the character of that law, the law of God. We need to look at the Lord's expectations, and we need to look at the manner in which he responds to the suffering of his people. So a few weeks ago, we looked at the history of redemption. And, and as we did so, we talked about you know, life before the fall. And, and there, you know, I made clear that the Lord said to Adam, listen, you do what I say, you'll live. After the fall, that perfect obedience is no longer possible. And so what we see is that the Lord pro- provides or promises to provide a righteousness for his people. It's a righteousness that comes in the form of the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent, right? It's a righteousness that, that brings about the redemption of his people through history. This means that the Lord is going to supply all that his people need to know him and follow him. It means he's going to make himself known to the people. So as we think about that, and then we think about the law before we let it be an overwhelming burden that that grinds us down, let's remember that the Lord in giving it first redeems his people. We see this in the Ten Commandments. The, 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 The introduction to the Ten Commandments is I'm the Lord who's redeemed you, who's brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now follow me. It's not just gracious in its foundation, it's also gracious in its composition. What do I mean by that? Well, first, the the word of God, the law of God, helps us discern what is right and what is not right. It helps us discriminate between what we should do and shouldn't do. I'll give you a really clear illustration of this, and it's actually Adam in the garden. Right? The, 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 when the Lord says, don't eat from the fruit of the tree, that's the first law, and if we think of it that way. Um, the Lord could have said, you know, he could have made the garden, and he could have made Adam, and he could have put him in the garden, and he could have said, um, just so you know, Adam, one of those trees out there, if you eat of it, you're going to die. Have fun. But that's not what he said. He gave him specific instructions. Tree of the knowledge of of good and evil, don't eat from that one. The rest of them you can, but that one you can't. Why? Because he wanted it to be clear. That is gracious. When, when, When Adam's wife ate of the fruit, it said that the fruit was desirable. Meaning we don't get any indication from the fruit of the tree that Adam shouldn't have eaten it, except that the Lord gave him instruction as to what was right and what was wrong. It's a law of the Lord, but it's gracious. If the Lord does not provide the law, then Israel, Judah, all of us for that matter, have difficulty in understanding what is an ethical thing to do and what is not. We might have certain ideas, but the law makes it clear. 
Second, we see that the law is gracious in that it gives provision for failure. And this is how you know, the Lord knows his people and, how he, and his expectations for them. When you fail to keep the law, you are to go in faith-filled obedience with a sacrifice to worship the Lord. The law is gracious at its beginning and all throughout. As we think about this, as we think about the grace that the Lord gives to his Old Testament folks, we should not be surprised at the way in which we see God's grace poured out through Christ. Not just in his death and resurrection, not just in his death death and resurrection, which serve as the culmination of the sacrifices in the Old Testament, but also in his life. Now, just a few moments ago, we read from um, John 11, and we looked at the way in which Jesus responds to the suffering of his friends, right? And, and as we think about the context of that story, you, if, if in the verses before we began reading, we see that Jesus gets word that his friend, the friend whom he loves, Lazarus, is sick to the point of death. And Jesus, with great love for Lazarus and Martha and Mary, goes, and, and, you know, goes to help heal him, right? No. In great love for his friends and for the glory of the Lord, Jesus lets him die. And after a confused exchange with his disciples, to be clear, they're the ones confused, not Jesus, um, they, they all go down to visit Martha and Mary. And by the time Jesus gets there, Lazarus has been dead for four days. Now, let's not lose sight of the obvious here. Jesus is the God-man. He's truly God and truly man. He has perfect knowledge of what is to happen because from the beginning of creation, he has ordained it to happen. He knows what has happened and what he will do in the coming moments. Notice also, as Martha and Jesus and Mary are engaged with one another, that Martha, and I would say both sisters, know that they are going to see their brother again. They believe in the resurrection. Martha says, I I know I'm going to see him again in the resurrection. I say this to say that, that... as we understand their position, Martha and Mary are in the same sorts of position as, as you and I are as we suffer loss. As, as a loved one departs and goes to be with the Lord, we understand it. One, that the Lord could save them. And two, that we'll see them again in the resurrection. And there's a part that, you know, of me, the, the unfeeling robotic part, that kind of looks at this and says, Martha, why are you so upset? You're going to see your uh, sibling in the resurrection. And the, the human part of me immediately answers in response to say, don't you understand that death is not natural? Don't you understand that death is, is, is as unnatural as a cold sun or a fish with wings? 
It's not the way that the world is meant to be. And we see here in this text the way Jesus responds. And again, he's the one who knows what is about to happen. He's the one who knows that Lazarus is going to be resurrected at the end of time, but he's also the one that knows that Lazarus is going to be resurrected in about five minutes. And he sees Martha and Mary, and he sees the people, and his response is to weep. And again, we say, why? You know what's ha- going to happen. This would be a time to say, watch this, guys. I mean, it's, it, you're bringing, it, it's the best gift you could imagine, right? But it's not what he does. Why? Because he knows that death is alien to God's purposes. That it is a consequence of sin and not part of creation. I think that's telling for how the Lord must have looked on Manasseh, how the Lord must have looked upon his, his people as Nebuchadnezzar is coming across, as Nebuchadnezzar is devouring the land and rolls Israel up, as, as Nebuchadnezzar levels the temple and sends all of the important people in society off into exile, kills all he can, and subjugates the rest because he doesn't care about them. The Lord had to look down with the same pained feeling for his people. He takes no delight in the suffering of his people. He knows that this, this destruction that is about to happen in Jerusalem is going to bring about suffering within his people. But at the same time, because of the sins of the people, the Lord cannot allow Jerusalem to remain. The Lord cannot allow his name to be profaned any longer, where where the the sins of the people are propagated. And, And as we think about that, we think, well, Golly gee, did they just sin one too many times? Did they just do one thing that was wrong? No, we recognize here that what they've done is they've rejected the Lord and they've rejected his word. They've said, I don't want any part in that. And the Lord gave them exactly what they asked for. So we see in this suffering, the Lord working out his righteousness for his glory. It is not a happy-go-lucky masochism. It's not the Lord being capricious, saying, well, today I'm going to do that, and tomorrow I'll do something different. Rather, it is the Lord working for his glory. And again, this pain and suffering is the context of the book of Lamentations. It's the cause of the writing of Lamentations. It's the Spirit's inspired word showing how we can wrestle with God's holiness, our sinfulness, and the outworking of the Lord's righteous judgment. Now, as we think about 
Lamentations, as we think about the fall of Jerusalem, as we think about the fall of the temple, the loss of worship, um, you know, we, we happily recognize that we don't have to worry about hordes of angry Babylonians. Um, we also worry, you know, we recognize that we don't have to worry about the destruction of the temple. That one was rebuilt, and then it was destroyed and rebuilt. And you might say, hang on, wait a second, when was that? We could look at John 2, right, where the Lord Jesus talks about destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. And he was talking about his body. Because where we live on this side of the cross, we, we recognize that at Jesus' incarnation, the, the idea of temple and worship had a fundamental change. It's why we call Jesus Emmanuel, which means God with us. And as the Lord Jesus is the temple of God and we are joined with him, we recognize that we don't go to worship in Jerusalem. We don't go to, to worship at a place, even you know, this building or, or all church buildings, if they were to crumble or, or, or if the government were to say, no, 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 you can't meet, we would still understand that the church, the gathered people of God, would be able to worship the Lord because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and we would do so in spirit and truth. And this means we have a ready-made answer. If the evil one comes to pick at the scabs of our suffering... If, if he's present saying, you know, real Christians don't suffer, or on the other hand, you know, your suffering points and directs to a, to a God who really isn't in control, we would say no. We would, we, would, we would look to the Lord Jesus, who by his life, death, and resurrection has redeemed us, and we would say, though we're redeemed, we are left in the world. We're not of it, but we are left in it. And until such time as he calls us home or he returns, we will still experience the effects of the fall. We'll experience pain and suffering and loss, but that doesn't mean that we're not securely in the Lord's hands. It actually just means that we are just as dependent upon God's providential care as the Israelites amidst all of the enemies around them. We might not have national enemies on all sides, but we are still just as dependent upon the Lord for our peace, for our well-being. As we know that we are in the Lord's hands, it allows us to look with an eager expectation to His return. Right? So, so as we will be approaching, Lord willing, the, the book of Lamentations, and as we'll be working through the five laments we see there that, that are part of the fall of Israel, what we can do is we wrestle with a holy and just God, a world that is broken, remaining sin that is within us, and, and it helps us understand how we can approach the Lord in confidence. Confidence that we are in His hands. And confident that by His Spirit we can work through Revelation 3, those verses where, where John says, wake up and strengthen the things that, are rem that remain. As we do so, what we may find for God's people suffering 
helps us destroy dependence on the idols we make. It helps us destroy any dependence upon created things. And it will help us grow in our understanding of who the Lord is and who he has called us to be. Namely, his people who depend on him for all things. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we again come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would be at work within us. And the, in the good times when, when we see you clearly and we are eager to follow you, as well as in the times of hurt and frustration and sorrow, when we aren't exactly sure which way to proceed. We pray that your spirit would guide us and direct us through all. Guide us and direct us to your son, our Lord and Redeemer, in whose name we pray. Amen.